0: not so itself. If you talk, you can sing. If you can walk, you can dance. Children are the reward of life. Knowledge is like a garden. If not cultivated, it can't be harvested. A weaver bird will build its nest with the support of other birds' feathers." Several years ago in Cameroon for my organization's annual branch conference, I was asked to submit a collection of my photos to go on display around the auditorium. I chose photos that I thought reflected the breadth and the diversity of this country that is often nicknamed Africa in miniature. For a caption, I twinned each photo with an African proverb the text and the image working together to create a visual metaphor of the continent's collective wisdom. One of my favorite photos was that of a bright yellow weaver bird hanging upside down at the entrance to his inverted nest. By design, the upside-down construction makes it extremely difficult for predators to gain entry into the nest. To this photo, I joined the proverb, a weaver bird... Will build its nest with the support of other birds' feathers in order to highlight the importance of partnership in missions. So imagine my surprise when later during the conference I heard a senior Cameroonian colleague attribute this African proverb to me. <laughs> in the words of Drew Moss, the weaver bird, blah, 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 blah. Despite this flattering attribution, I cannot in any meaningful way be considered the author of this or any other proverb, save our family's motto, getting it done while having fun. (laughs) Even so, you might say that I mastered these proverbs. I mastered them for the way that they were applied at the right time for the right purpose. Surely that's the point of Proverbs. They're wise reflections that spark our sustained reflection and eventual application. They beckon us down the path of life, equipping us to successfully navigate its contours. It's not enough to simply know old sayings, since a proverb in the mouth of a fool is like a stick with thorns brandished by the hand of a drunkard. If true wisdom comes down from above, then it's not even necessarily our job to author pithy sayings as much as it is to master them. For it is in mastering God's wisdom that we begin to enjoy life as God designed it. Today we are continuing the church's summer series in the book of Proverbs. We're going to look at the wider teaching of Proverbs 3, 1 through 12, before focusing in on Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, a passage that is truly at the heart of the message of the book of Proverbs. When we look at Proverbs 3, 1 through 12, we see that divides nicely into a set of six commands and incentives. Here we find a caring father directly teaching his son how to navigate life. And while the father is lecturing his boy, we are all invited to listen in and carefully consider his words of wisdom. So he offers six sets of exhortations, commands. Don't forget my teaching. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your understanding. In all your ways know him. I kind of made that one. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. I considered that another one. Honor the Lord with your possessions and do not despise the Lord's instructions. Six commands. Each of these commands is followed by a favorable outcome that is intended to motivate obedience. They help answer the question, why should I listen to you? Why should I heed your words of advice? Why should I obey? Well, the Father responds, if you obey… You will enjoy a long, fulfilling life characterized by peace, well-being, prosperity, shalom, as they say in Hebrew. You will find favor and a good reputation with both God and others. The Lord will clear the road ahead of you. You will find health for your body, or the Hebrew actually says your navel, but we think it means kind of your whole body, right? You will have an abundance of food and wine, more than you will ever need. The Lord will love you as a father, delighting in helping you return to his paths of righteousness. This loving father makes an appeal to the whole person. The father is not just saying, Listen to what I say because I said so. And when taken together, these incentives, these motivations present quite an impressive package. What else could one want out of life? We must trust the truth of these incentives. The Father's outlook on life is simply taken for granted. As is often observed in the book of Proverbs, these rewards are not categorical, unconditional promises as much as descriptions of general truths. They are incentives for following the Father's instructions, prizes that await those who commit themselves to act in certain ways. For if you fear the Lord trust in Him, swerve to avoid evil, and don't seek to be wise in your own eyes, then in the view of Proverbs, you will, in general, enjoy a long, quiet, yet fruitful life. Living life the way God intended is smoother than blazing your own trail. He designed you. He made you in His image. He knows what makes you tick. He knows what makes you happy. He's perfectly in tune with who you are and knows exactly what you need, exactly what is good for you. What's more, he rejoices over you. It's for good reason that the Lord hates arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and stirring up trouble among family members. Life-based on your own understanding, is half-lived li- half with one foot in the grave. Now, even if this is not, even if this picture is not a fully-orbed biblical theology of what it is to have wealth and possessions, as we Christians today might articulate it, what we discover is essential tools for navigating life. Confronted with these incentives... I find it comical how quickly my mind starts running to exceptions. But what about... You promised... But what about... What about... My mind runs to the exceptions. Yes, yes, there are exceptions. But don't let the exceptions spoil the carrot, if you will. Spend as much time entertaining the general truths on display in these words of wisdom as chasing after the exceptions. The father stuffs our backpacks full of provisions for life's journey. It's on us to obey and use them skillfully. Life, the good life, is the goal. The emphasis on prosperity in Proverbs can make us feel a bit uncomfortable, especially in light of contemporary excesses that we find in some teachers who too narrowly focus on prosperity to the neglect of the wider teaching of Scripture. Does the thought of pursuing the good life, all cushy and comfortable, make you uncomfortable? If so, you're not alone. On this, someone has helpfully suggested that perhaps the best way to think of it is that God built the world to operate in such a way, with punishments inherent in bad actions and rewards inherent in good actions. But He is ultimately the one behind all consequences. Let's look now more closely at Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, where we read, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know Him, and He will make your paths straight. Trusting in the Lord means to have confidence in His goodness. It's a command and a warning. A warning against trusting in any person or thing apart from trusting in Him. In the Old Testament, trust in the Lord is typically associated with deliverance and protection from evil in view of survival and thriving. For an ancient Israelite, the good life was growing old in peace and security, enjoying abundant crops, seeing your family progress through the generations before arriving at the end of your days to lie down with your ancestors in peace. All of this hopeful that the Lord is in the process of fulfilling His covenant promises. The ancient Israelite trusted the Lord for this good life. This was what wisdom and following His paths of righteousness were supposed to afford His faithful ones. It was, however, a very this-world perspective, a perspective that perhaps some of us have overlooked. The opposite of the good life for an ancient Israelite was an untimely, unnatural death before or during the prime of life. The person who suffers this face, this fate, was probably ambushed while going somewhere, or they were simply a fool. They meet this end either through their own foolishness and wickedness or that of others. The ancient Israelite prays against this daily, trusting in God for protection and deliverance. The ancient Israelite entrusted God for deliverance because, for the most part they believed that this life was their only shot. Once in the grave, you continued a reduced existence in the belly of the earth as a shadow of your former self. There was neither praise nor trust in God in the grave. For example, in the Psalms, we find the psalmist bluntly bemoaning to God, no one is going to praise you when they are dead. Who gives you thanks from the grave? Or what gain is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your truth? It is not the dead who praise the Lord, nor any of those descending into the silence of, the, into the silence of death. Or as Isaiah said, for the grave cannot praise you, death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. The result is that you as an ancient Israelite cry out to God to deliver you from the jaws of death so that you can experience the good life now consistent with the promises of God. So let me ask you, do you trust the Lord? I recently asked a retired missionary colleague of mine this question after he shared with me that he had just, he's just been diagnosed with prostate cancer. As we talked, he mentioned that the reality of this diagnosis has yet to really sink in. As a good Christian, I told him I'd be praying for him. But then I said, Christoph, can, can we trust the Lord even when we get news like you just got? I was trying to provoke him a little bit. His response, we can always trust the Lord. He is faithful to his promises. He never promised that we'd never have to suffer. Suffer. Sorry, but it's true. We have no guarantee of an easy life. I do hate to suffer, though. I do not believe in the so-called prosperity gospel, but I believe in the risen Lord Jesus, the Messiah. For me, this is somewhat uncertain, sailing in uncharted waters, but the Father in heaven is still in control. I've decided to trust Him. Yet sometimes my brain is more certain about this than my heart. Our conversation then turned to talking about the good life, we agreed that the prosperity of the good life as portrayed in the old testament only comes to fruition in the messiah i did try to protest to him though saying well what about god making your path straight he told me in no uncertain terms that i was a fool and that that, that using that verse in that way is taking it out of context and it that i must read scripture with the whole grain of god's word Stories like this are to be found right here among the congregation of FBC. How can I appeal to you to fear the Lord? Behold a room full of people who fear the Lord. How can I appeal to you to trust the Lord? Behold a room full of people who trust the Lord. Ask someone here today if they trust the Lord and why. Put them on the spot. Ask them if they fear the Lord. And why? Put them on the spot. You are going to hear a multitude of responses based on a variety of experiences. In the Bible, another way of talking about trust is committing things to God, placing them in His hands. On the cross, for example, Jesus placed His life into the Father's hands. In Luke's gospel, He called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I In trust, I place my spirit, and then he breathed his last. That's what it is to trust, recognizing that God's gracious hands are open wide, and then handing over to him circumstances, fears, personhood. Peter later admonishes us, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. This is not a passive attitude. It's not doing good. It's doing good while trusting that God is in charge of how it all shakes out. Similarly, in Acts 14 and 15, we find Paul and Barnas, Barnabas being handed over to the grace of God, his benevolent care, for their first and second missionary journeys. Then, before sailing off in Acts chapter 20, Paul bids farewell to the Ephesian elders and says, I now entrust, commit, place, hand you over to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. Curiously, Paul entrusts them in the first place to God, but also, secondly, to the word of His grace, having confidence in God's goodness. And this is exactly what you all did for me and my family when you commissioned us for missionary service on Sunday, April 17th, 2011. My wife and I, we came right down front right here. You gathered around, you put your hands on us, you prayed over us, and you handed us over into the gracious hands of God. Confident of His goodness, you gave us over to Him for His mission. Do you still trust Him? I do, and I know you do, because this church continues to send out commissioned missionaries, send out members so that others might come to know the good news of God's grace in Jesus the Messiah. You entrusted us to God and to the word of His grace, and an unspoken pact of trust was created between you as our sending church— us as your missionaries, and the host communities whom we serve. In the case of our ministry with Wycliffe Bible Translators, it's a pact centered around, centered on access to God's Word. We long for everyone to access God's Word in the medium and language that serves them best. We want to see people flourishing in community, using their languages to know God and to make Him known. In the world of Bible translation, there's an unspoken pact of trust between translator and reader. You trust that your translation has been done faithfully from the biblical languages, and unless you know the three biblical languages, the Bible must be translated for you, and you have to trust a translator. Additionally, you trust that I, as your missionary translation consultant, will provide good advice to translation teams with whom I work. When I was working recently with a uh, team from Côte d'Ivoire, I discovered that the translators had left out the second half of a verse in the book of Numbers. When I asked them about it, when I brought them up on it, they cited the difficulty of translating all the different tabernacle terminology. Snuffers, fire pans, tongs, sprinkling basins, ladles. So as your missionary, what do I do? You trust me, right? I assume that when you commissioned me, you sent me out to help ensure quality in Bible translation so that God's Word is translated in its entirety and translations don't omit passages sort of willy-nilly because they're difficult or because they talk about snuffers or that sort of thing. And I think I already know how you might respond if I asked you whether the second half of this verse should be included. So what did I do? I asked the translators what their people would think if they opened their Bibles and found that the second half of this verse was missing. Would they be happy? These translators, too, had been commissioned by their community under a pact of trust and therefore had a sacred responsibility to faithfully render God's Word. They agreed that their people would be expecting to find the entire verse. If the translators trusted their own understanding, leaving out tricky words, that could risk betraying their community's trust in them. So we agreed that it would be best to go back and revisit this verse with the community, asking for their help to find the best way to talk about snuffers. So let me ask you, how do you trust the Lord in your work? Snuffers are a little thing that I think like scissors that you use to pinch wicks to trim a wick. Is that what snuffers are? Yeah? Like little scissors? Yeah? People are nodding their heads. Good. Okay. Just in case anybody's wondering, um, how do you trust the Lord in your work? How do you ground your understanding in trust in the Lord? What does trusting the Lord look like in your occupation? When opportunities present themselves for you to protect yourself or twist the truth, do you rely on your own understanding? Do you prop yourself up on your own understanding, or do you rely on the Lord? Trust leans on the expectation that God's ability far exceeds mine, and His way of doing things will lead to greatest joy. Relying on Him involves knowing what He requires by consuming His Word and talking it over with other believers. In my work as a consultant, checking local language translations for quality, we start every day with a simple prayer, Lord, protect us from stupid errors. The Lord knows our hearts. We entrust our work to Him and trust that He will guide us each step of the way, that He will complete our understanding where it's lacking as we seek to do the best we can with the tools that are available to us. In my work, I trust that God's Word will be fruitful, that it will not return to Him unfulfilled, but will do exactly what He wants and will accomplish what He intends. When I spend 30 minutes helping a team figure out how to translate snuffers and other tabernacle terminology, I trust that God is in the details. There have been many times... Where I've been startled awake in the middle of the night, thinking of a s- specific verse that we've covered during the week. I call this the spirit of Ruth. Because these thoughts come to me in the middle of the night, uncover my feet, um, cuddle up to me in such a way that in the morning I know exactly what I need to do. And this happened to me several weeks ago when I was working with a team on the book of First Chronicles we worked all day on multiple chapters and then in the middle of the night i awoke with the chilling thought that we needed to add a footnote in a specific verse in order to clarify something for the reader so in the morning when we went we went back to the i asked the translators if we could go back to that verse and when we went back to the verse to add a footnote we found that in fact something had gone wrong with the computer and it was the text was just all garbled the translation of that verse made zero sense. So it turned out we did not add a footnote, but did the Spirit of Ruth, did God guide us back to that verse so we could correct an error that we thought we had already fixed? Something had gone terribly wrong, but God helped us get it turn all the way, turned back around. Lord, keep us from stupid errors. Our understanding must be built on trust in the Lord, once He has brought us to the understanding that failing to do so is foolishness. Some say they trust the process. I trust the God of the process. Do you? The clearest example I know of trusting the Lord is Hezekiah's prayer, recorded toward the end of 2 Kings. In this section, we find the city of Jerusalem under siege by the Assyrian army, surrounded by invading forces. Judah's king Hezekiah is bombarded by threats and mockery from bloodthirsty aggressors they th- they say things to him like what are you relying on you think mere words are strategy and strength for war who are you now relying on so that you have rebelled against me now look you're relying on egypt that splintered reed of a staff that will pierce the hand of anyone who grabs it and leans on it this is what pharaoh king of egypt is to all who rely on him. Suppose you say, we rely on the Lord our God. The messengers continue mocking Hezekiah and his guys. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He can't rescue you from my power. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to rely on the Lord. And this continues and continues and continues. So how does King Hezekiah respond to this clear and present danger? In 2 Kings 19 we read, Hezekiah took the letter from the messenger's hands, read it, then went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord, Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see… Hear the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods but made by human hands. Wood and stone, they have destroyed them. Now, Lord our God, please save us from His power so that all kingdoms of the earth may know You, that You, Lord, our God alone. When faced with a situation of incomparable danger to mortal life, Hezekiah took the threat, he read it, went into the Lord's temple, the Lord's presence, and spread it out before the Lord and prayed. He called on Lord, the Lord to open his ears and hear, open his eyes and see. He pleaded with the Lord to save him and his people so that all would know that God, the Lord is God alone. Hezekiah showed his trust through faith in action. So let me encourage you, the next time you face a situation where you don't know how you're going to get by, I invite you, take that perceived threat, take that danger, that mental anguish, that fear, that anxiety that you're experiencing, I invite you to take it into the Lord's presence through prayer. Open your hands, and in your mind's eye, picture whatever it is. I want you to place it in your hands and I want you to lay it out before the Lord, like, Isaiah, like Hezekiah did that letter. He spread it out before the Lord. In your mind's eye, spread out what it is, whatever it is before the Lord. Present it to Him in prayer. Hold it in your hands. Know that because of Jesus, His ears are open to your cry. His eyes are open to your plight. In that moment, I want you to pour out your heart to Him. Tell Him what you're afraid of. Pray the words of Psalm 62. Rest in God alone, my soul, for my hope comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will not be shaken. My salvation and glory depend on God, my strong rock. My refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times. Pour out your hearts before Him. God is our refuge say la pray pour out your heart and then say la pause for a divine interlude the fear of mankind is a snare but the one who trusts in the lord is protected back in april i was working on a translation of second kings Um, with a community who live under constant threat, constant terrorist attacks, where buildings are burned, homes are pillaged, fields are stolen out of the hands of uh, subsistence farmers. And while working on 2 Kings, we were moved by these trust-filled actions of King Hezekiah and the Lord's response to him. Since then, we continue to pray one specific part Uh, we, we continue to pray the last stanza of the Lord's response to Hezekiah concerning the king of Assyria. The Lord says to Hezekiah about the king who's threatening him, he says, this king's raging against me and arrogance have reached my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. I will make you go back the way you came. We pray these Lord, these words regularly. Yes, Lord, hook the noses of these terrorists and turn them around. Have you ever needed to pray a prayer like that? Do not be afraid to pray specific prayers. Notice that Hezekiah prayed, Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes and see. Hear the words. To me, it sounds a bit impolite. And the Lord replies to him saying, All this has reached my ears. Did his words reach the Lord's ears through Hezekiah's prayer? Every time we say amen, we are verbally demonstrating our trust in God and inviting him to act in accordance with his character. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. With all your heart helps us to answer the question how are we to trust the Lord? Well, it's with our whole being, our whole heart, the entirety of our inner self. Do not rely on your own understanding. Sometimes in the Bible, the word heart can point to one aspect of our inner life, such as feelings, emotion, the will, or the mind. However, in our passage, it's probably best to take heart in its most comprehensive sense. All of your inclinations your entire nature, every ounce of your personality. With the heart seen as the governing center of all of these. This means that with all that you are, trust the Lord. Not a single part of who you think you are is excluded from the command to trust the Lord. The ultimate human dysphoria is the dissatisfaction that comes from not trusting in the Lord with our whole heart. Twinned with the command to trust in the Lord is the complementary instruction to not rely on our own understanding. This is not, however, a command to switch off our brains. As if if I can't rely on my own understanding and I need only trust the Lord, why have any understanding at all? This is opposed to the life of faith and contrary to wisdom. Wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord, but goes on to trust while seeking to understand as much as possible about our Father's world. Do not be content with your own understanding. Let us develop Christian minds out of fear and trust in the Lord. Fear and trust are the seeds that sprout into a mature Christian mind. Now, brothers and sisters, as a missionary living overseas for the last decade or so, I have to say that I'm a bit troubled by some of the trends that I'm with, uh, witnessing from afar in our great nation. My non-American friends and colleagues abroad, people from all over the world, Christians and non-Christians alike, are asking me questions that I find really difficult to answer and I feel embarrassed by. I'm at a loss for how to respond because I feel like I lack the necessary, the sufficient understanding to have an informed opinion about certain issues. And I I don't even feel like I have to name or list or cite any examples. I'm sure that something immediately came to your mind. And to me, that says a lot. So whatever came to mind for you just now, how have you been trusting the Lord in that? Have you been relying on your own understanding concerning that issue? Have you been acknowledging God in your ways and in your your ways of thinking and acting? Where maybe have you been trusting the Lord with less than your whole heart? Where have you been trusting half-heartedly while leaning on your own understanding on the other side of things? Where have you been trusting with all your heart despite not understanding? Where have you been leaning confidently on the Lord in the face of opposition? Now, why do I bring this up? Do not rely on your understanding. I think we have yet to see the best of the Christian mind. With unprecedented access to knowledge, tools, and one another, the best of Christian thinking may still be in front of us. Maybe one of these children in here today. But in order to get there, we can't settle. We must trust the Lord in the style of faith-seeking understanding. Fear of and trust in the Lord must be primary... Then we must go all in to discover which elements of our faith and practice are cultural and which are biblical, recognizing God's creative design in unleashing human beings as culture makers. I'm relieved that I'm not the only one who finds this present time that we're experiencing equal parts troubling and confusing. Professor Mark Knoll, an evangelical historian of Christianity in America, has pointed out similar findings and was recently recently encouraged to publish an updated edition of his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. In it, he laments a loss of what he calls the marks of scholarship. They are patience, wide-ranging research, care in defining the objects in view, Eagerness to engage in critical responses, and willingness to examine problems from multiple perspectives. Sure, we're not all scholars, we're not all called to be scholars, we're not all striving to be scholars, but I would like us to ask ourselves to submit to what we might call a rely on your own understanding test. Using these marks of scholarship, ask yourself how you're doing on each of these points. Am I patient in dialogue? Am I quick to listen, slow to speak? Do I listen carefully and utter a patient reply? How do I inform myself of current events? Do I read widely? Do I seek news and information from a wide range of sources? Do I exercise care in identifying the issues at hand? Or do I tend to attack people's motives and character? Am I eager to engage with people with whom I don't see eye to eye in peace-loving, ironic ways? Am I willing to examine issues from multiple perspectives? For me personally, not answering positively to some of these questions stems from my own insecurity and lack of trust in the Lord. In order to embody these marks... I must distrust my own understanding and wait on the Lord, trusting His design for the good life as revealed in Scripture. To be clear, we must pursue knowledge God's way, recognizing His authority in all domains. But do I trust the Lord enough to strive to embody each of these marks, or am I trying to ensure, assure the outcomes through my own understanding? I don't want to be wise in my own eyes doing my own research. Rather, I want to pursue God's wisdom. In Proverbs, we find instruction from one of the wisest human beings to walk this earth. He did his own research and concluded that in order to be truly wise, in order to lead the good life, one needs to fear the Lord and trust the Lord. To that, he added immense knowledge and learning. But becoming wise should not inspire anyone to confidence in their own intellect or lead to arrogance. Now, living in this way, trusting the Lord, waiting on the Lord, I like to think of it as somewhat of a trust fall. Trusting the Lord can feel like falling and wondering whether the Lord is going to catch you. What if I invited a volunteer to come on stage right now to do a trust fall? I could probably get somebody up here, maybe. Would somebody come? Well, if they did, what if I purposely let that person fall? What if I deliberately didn't catch him? How would you react? How would that make you feel, seeing a helpless individual who trusts somebody fall? You would probably shout, that's unjust. You would scream, that's not what you're supposed to do in a trust fall. Well, and you know what? Society cannot operate like that either, and the Lord would never do that. One Saturday recently at my boy's soccer practice, I was standing around chatting with another dad from church, and he asked me, he said, come on, yeah, I know you translate the Bible, whatever. Can you just help me understand what it means to wait on the Lord? Wait on the Lord, and He will rescue you, for example, in Proverbs. This friend wasn't sure what it meant to wait on the Lord. He thought it meant something like to serve food and drink, like somebody waits on you to serve food and drink. He thought it meant that when we we wait on the Lord, it meant to serve Him. But waiting on the Lord has more to do with hope than it does service. Hope is quite a different thing than serving. Hope is not something you do for the Lord as if He needed anything, but how you respond in faith to the Lord. Standing there, I asked my son George, who's seven years old, if he trusted me. Yes, Daddy. Do you trust me enough to do a trust fall? He immediately jumped up, and once we agreed that we were both ready, here's this little seven-year-old boy, you know, once we agreed that we were both ready, he leaned back. He fell into my arms, waiting, hoping, confident that I would catch him. As he was falling, he was waiting. The wait was only as long as it took for him to arrive into my arms. So, ask a little child to do a trust fall with you, and I want you to watch their face as they close their eyes and they lean back. A blank stare will turn into the most delightful smile that you've ever seen. That's what it's like to trust in the Lord. Falling into his arms with pursed lips that turn into a smile born of thrill and hope requited. The child trusts you, leans back in faith, and waits for you to catch them. As the child is falling, the child is waiting, trusting. The thrill and joy of that child cradled in your arms will multiply multiply thrill and joy in you. Your heavenly Father will always catch you. He delights in you. So you can trust Him. You can wait on Him. You can lean into Him with faith mingled with magisterial awe. It's a trust fall. Except where your heavenly Father is concerned, He's the one pulling you, guiding you towards Him. And friends, He's drawing you to Him today. He's inviting you into an intimate relationship with Him, built upon the most unshakable trust that this world will ever know. So come to Him, trust Him, know that He acts for your good and not for your harm. In all your ways, know Him. While society may encourage us to uphold a a personal autonomy, wisdom looks to God every step of the way, in every decision, in every desire, preference, and determination. We are not autonomous, but we are subjects in His kingly creation. It's His world, His choice. In all your ways, know Him is a declaration of God's authority, the dependent nature of humans, and our own insufficiency. There's hardly today a more radical thought than this. God's ways are better than our human judgments. And as you trust in Him, He will be the one to straighten and direct your paths. Otherwise, you're the one directing, and unless your paths correspond to His, they won't be straight. The path will not lead to life. So what do we do with all of this to wrap up? Remember that in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, we are overhearing the voice of a wise and experienced father speaking to his son, my son. So ask yourself, are you listening? This is advice from somebody who's reached the pinnacle of human knowledge. Vast knowledge obtained, he turns around only to tell us Not to rely on our own understanding, but to trust the Lord. True living with understanding is only possible by trusting in the Lord. I, in myself, am insufficient to live the good life as God intended. So, I appeal to you today in the same way that the Father appeals to His Son. Not based on my own wisdom or my own reasoning, but on the good life That God offers you in Christ. Why should we trust the Lord? Because His ways lead to life and life in all their fullness. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. This, brothers and sisters, is flourishing. Do you not want to experience life as God intended it? Do you think that human flourishing is somehow opposed to faith in God? does this kind of life make you uneasy? I admit that I sometimes find it difficult to incorporate every aspect of a Proverbs worldview into my Christian worldview. But even so, I have confidence that all comes to fruition in Christ. But is this sort of life only for the life to come, entirely absent from the here and now? I don't get the impression from the, Bible's, from the Bible's wisdom literature that that's the case. Yes, complete new creation flourishing is yet to come in the new heavens and earth. But equally true is that Jesus announced the coming of the kingdom of God among us. The kingdom of God is in your midst, Jesus the King. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. John the Baptist asked if Jesus was it, to which Jesus responded, just go tell him what you see. What they saw was everything that threatens the good life being pushed back, not merely reversed, but being reconfigured as a new work of God. Sickness, death, spiritual oppression, everything that could cut life short. If we apply each of the incentives of Proverbs 3 to the life of Jesus as a test for the good life, we may be inclined to suggest that he did not obtain it. Did Jesus live the good life of Proverbs 3? No. He was cursed for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, dying, he descended into the grave for you. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh for the life of the world. He gave his flesh for the life of the world so that you would know life, the good life, life as God intends. Jesus, the perfect son, perfectly mastered and applied wisdom. The good news about him, his life, his ministry, his atoning death, descent, resurrection, and ascension is called the wisdom of God. But Jesus himself experienced a bad death, dying in the prime of life after perfectly obeying God. How can this be? At his crucifixion, Jesus cried from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The chief priests and scribes and elders recognized that there was a disconnect. Something was off, and they mocked him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. He trusts God. So where's his deliverance? Three days later, the God the Father did deliver, but in an entirely new way, resurrection. In Jesus' resurrection, immortal life has been actualized in history. It's a thing. His resurrection becomes the basis for all resurrection, and all resurrection is to be understood in terms of His. No longer does the hope of resurrection rest, as in the Old Testament, merely upon prophetic vision or upon inferences from God's covenant relationships. No, no longer is resurrection to be be defined simply as renewed life after escaping the grave resurrection life now find its meaning in the image of Jesus Christ. You see, attempting to live the good life in a world dominated by sin and death, apart from the wisdom of God, is a fool's errand. It's impossible. So, Jesus has inaugurated a new creation, a new kingdom in which death is dead, sin is dead, and we are free to live and serve. There is hope beyond the grave, The grave is not your final destination. Your final breath is not you waving goodbye to the good life, regardless of how you meet your end. Jesus has run the course of death ahead of you to clear the way and forever change our outlook on this world and the world to come. Those who are in Christ, united to Him by faith, are already part of that new creation, bringing the kingdom way of life into the present as a preview of what's to come. There's no guarantee that we won't experience a bad death, but rest assured that being united to Christ by faith is for your flourishing, flourishing in ways that ancient people of faith only started to catch a glimpse of. The good life outlined in Proverbs is a shadow of the good life in Jesus, the Messiah. We can trust in God and not our own understanding because Christ demonstrated that trusting in God results in ultimate vindication, justification, being declared to be in the right. Trusting in God says, I will, I will entrust myself to the one who orchestrates all things for the pleasure of His goodwill and my good. It trusts that living a life marked by faith, active trust in God will lead to ultimate flourishing, even though we may have difficulty seeing it now. What does it mean to trust in the the Lord for the good life? It means trusting God's instruction, trusting that the way God has told us to live is in fact the way that leads to true happiness and salvation, being ever conscious of what pleases Him. This new covenant perspective Jesus preached radically transforms the ancient Israelites' vision of the good life. In the resurrection life of the risen Messiah, the good life hinted at in the Old Testament reaches its fulfillment. He is the pioneer and trailblazer of our faith. He showed that death was not the end, but through defeating death, he opened a new path to the good life everlasting. He was obedient to death, even a bad death, to show that God is Lord over all. The the earthly, fleshly, physical deliverance in this present world isn't and wasn't the highest prayer that one can offer. No longer the highest aim of life. No, He removes the fear of untimely demise. He injects it with His blood, His new resurrection life, to inaugurate true and ultimate flourishing in this world and the world to come. Trusting in God says, I will unite myself to Christ by faith. I am free from every plan of darkness, free to live and free to love. I no longer fear death. My life is not snuffed out when I die. My hope is not in the here and now. My hope is in the God who reigns over all. Will you not unite yourself to him in faith today and become part of the new creation? Call on his name for the forgiveness of sins and cling to him in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your works in this world are beyond our comprehension. Yet you took on flesh and you came to us so that we could understand and we could begin to catch a glimpse of who you are and what you are doing in this world. We thank you for Jesus, the Son, who took on our sin, who died on the cross, who descended into the grave, and rose again to inaugurate an entirely new way of living a way of living that trusts in you, that does not rely on our own understanding. Heavenly Father, help us cling to you in faith. When trust feels like falling, remind us that you are there with open hands, ready to catch us. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us and that you are a good, good Father. We bless your name. Amen.